Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Alfred the Great, Edward the First, and Edward the Third. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Um, I didn't realise that what you meant by already. Yes! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, where we have reviewed all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. We identified 18 monarchs that we thought stood out from the rest, and we are now conducting playoffs to decide who will be crowned the Rex Factor champion. Mm-hmm. This is the last of three semi finals. Yep. So, the big contest between Alfred the Great and Edward III. Who is going to go through? <laughs> Of course, Ali and I vote, but crucially, you, the public, vote as well. So please, after this, go on to rexfactor.wordpress.com where you'll find all the information about how to vote and you select which one of those three you want to go through to the grand final. So, who is going to get through in this last semi-final episode? Edward I. Good night. <laughs> See you next time. We start off with mm. Alfred the Great. Mm. Born in 849, which was 1,165 years ago. Crikey. Comes to the throne in 871 at the age of 22. All right. Uh, a little bit of background for Alfred. Um, a little bit notoriously now, thanks to the person to my right. There was no single England at the time that Alfred comes to the throne. It's the age of the Saxons. They have different kingdoms. So we've got Mercia, Northumbria, Essex, Kent, Suffolk, East Anglia, and Alfred's kingdom, Wessex. Mm. Wessex uh, initially stretching some sort of roughly Kent in the sort of south-east England to Devon. Big one. Over to the southwest. It was a biggie. Uh, now, Alfred, as a young boy, um, it's actually quite well documented what he was up to. And in 853... Burn cakes? Uh, didn't burn any cakes in 853. He was just sort of three or four years old. Oh. He went on a pilgrimage to Rome. Um, sent on pilgrimage by his father. And it's probably had quite a big impact on Alfred in terms of his outlook on life mm. and his rule. All struck by seeing all these magnificent stone buildings in Rome, because obviously the Saxons have just sort of got these one-story yeah, little, sort of wood dwellings yeah. and huts and whatnot. And Pope Leo the Fourth, um, Alfred actually got to meet him. He confirmed Alfred, huh. acted as his godfather, and named him as a Roman consul. No way. Which is a bit of an honorary title, but nevertheless, if you're four years old, that's going to make a bit of an impression. Yeah, certainly. And you sort of, you sort of at this time still think of. Alfred the Great is like, and England is this backwater, but completely connected to Rome and... Yeah. Wow. And for Alfred, this is a lifelong bond, as you can imagine, him and the church. Um, so Alfred's very pious, he's got a real sense of divine purpose, not quite in the zealous Henry V way, mm. in a more kind of dutiful, tending to your flock kind of thing. Uh, now, we don't know too much about Alfred's upbringing after this point, but um, at his marriage banquet... Mm probably sort of late teenage years, he was struck down by terrible stomach pains. Oh, that old chestnut. Probably now we'd think Crohn's disease. Oh. Uh, which afflicts him for the rest of his life. But at the time, he thought he was being punished by God for... Uh, Naturally, yep. Discre- indiscretions with the gentle sex. Right. Perhaps. Okay. Um, and his biographer, Asser, said that he has been plagued continually with the savage attacks of some unknown disease, such that he does not either suffer from the disease itself or else, gloomily dreading it, is not driven almost to despair. Oh, God, he sounds... It sounds like he's got, had a terrible time, but I imagine he's going to accept this in a sort of Charles II manner and sort of get on with life. 
and see, he's only got one life and he's going to live it to the full, isn't he? Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting because it's, in a way, it's not a good setup really for a potential Rex Factor win. He's the youngest of five brothers, he's got a debilitating illness, and he's a bit of a hypochondriac. Yeah, he does, he's not it doesn't good. sound like he's no. going to be able to stand up to very much. And there's quite a lot that he's going to have to stand up to because we've got the Vikings coming over. Mm-hmm. 793 was the first raid at Lindisfarne. Devastated Saxon England with their guerrilla attacks. But it was in the 860s where things really get bad because they start to settle, mm. starting to actually conquer. Uh, Saxon King El in 867 and Edmund in 869 of Northumbria and East Anglia were blood eagles. Yes, that's horrid, isn't that? That's the um, lungs out of your back and hung in a tree job. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so that's what happens for the kings that resist. Others, uh, like Burgred and Mercia, decide just to run away. Yeah, probably sensible. So Wessex is then the only independent kingdom left. So Alfred is now the next in line. All these other brothers have died, apart from the... Yeah, what do they do? Vikings. Um, but his brother Ethelred is the king. Um, they're being chased down by the Vikings. They'd suffered a defeat at Reading. And then in 871, the forces meet near the Uffington White Horse. Pub? Uh, the pub. <laughs> the hill, I think. Oh, OK. And uh, at the Battle of Ashdown, two Viking divisions, two Saxon divisions. But Alfred's brother Ethelred was too busy taking mass, so he wouldn't come out to fight until yeah. he'd finished. Unready? Uh, he wasn't unready, which well, is ironic, because yeah. he actually was. <laughs> So Ethelred is praying, and Alfred is on the battlefield facing two Viking armies. Yeah. But Alfred gathers his troops into a shield wall, advances uphill, mm. fighting like a wild boar. <laughs> With his tusks. With his tusks. <laughs> and uh, put a good battle to the Vikings, and mm. then Ethelred's done praying, comes along, and it's a victory. Um, so that's all good, but they suffer some other defeats afterwards, and Ethelred probably suffers an ultimately fatal injury. Now, Ethelred technically has an infant son, but they agree at Basing that Alfred would succeed him if he were to die soon. Right. And in 28 days after that, he does die. Ding, 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 ding! <laughs> I haven't got my bow yet, but that's scandal, surely. And Alfred becomes king. Mm. So, Alfred defeated a month later at Wilton, so he had to sue for peace with the Vikings. Mm. And he effectively pays off the first informal Danegeld. Oh, this is so silly. Paying them to go away. Won them a few years of respite, where the Danes just took their money and went off somewhere else. Mm. But Alfred either didn't or couldn't do anything to improve Saxon defences. So, a Viking leader called Guthrum arrives on the scene in 877 with a great summer army and a huge fleet, which uh, poses quite a big problem for Alfred, but quite fortunately the fleet gets destroyed in a storm. From about 120 ships. Oh dear. Right, a biggie. So they came to terms again. But then in 878, Twelfth Night at Chippenham, Guthrum seized the town in a surprise attack and forced Alfred from court into exile. To where? To the marshes of Athelney in Somerset. Somerset, right, yeah. So Alfred is now out on his own, practically lost the kingdom. But that it's is all but gone. So- Somerset is in Wessex, isn't it? Yeah. So he's in exile in just a rubbish bit of his own land. Yes. <laughs> That's like being literally sent to commentary. <laughs> <laughs> It's not quite literally being sent to commentary. It's literally being sent to Somerset. And this, of course, is where we get the legend of the cakes. Alfred uh, was said to have sheltered in the house of a cowherd where the wife was making loaves. Alfred sits by the fire, doesn't notice that they're burning, and the wife comes back in and says, Oi, what are you doing? Burnt the cakes. Metaphor for him having taken his eye off the kingdom. Alfred himself later reflected, and he reflected that very often a man is responsive to the lessons of adversity, even though he previously refused to respond to his instructors' morals and precepts. But if he acquire the kingdom, he immediately becomes perverted with pride at the people's reverence for him, and becomes accustomed to unflattering praise. 
So what's he saying there? He's effectively saying, oops, my bad. Okay, he could have said that. But he doesn't give up, despite mm. the fact that other kings who don't give up get blood-eagled. Mm. Alfred doesn't run away. He takes a small band of supporters to Somerset mm. and to Athelney, this sort of little island, largely impenetrable with swamps and marshlands, so sort of getting around on punts. Mm. Glastonbury, isn't it? Glastonbury, exactly. He'd hunted there as a youth, so he knew the land very well. But he's got an underground network going on, and he establishes links with forces elsewhere nearby who are still loyal to him. Right. And then they agree to meet at a traditional meeting place, Egbert Stone, his uh, grandfather. They emerge from the marshes and make their move on Guthrum and the Vikings. Have they got enough men? Well, 878, we have the Battle of Eddington, which is really an all-or-nothing for Alfred Mm. and the Saxons. If he loses this... He's going to die pretty horribly, mm. and there will be no more independent Saxon kingdoms. Vikings will have effectively conquered the whole country. Mm. So, uh, they approach them, ride over the top of a ridge at dawn, and they charge down to the Vikings. This is, um, um, what's it called, the return of the boredom. <laughs> is it? Two towers. Two towers, yeah. Um, charge at the Vikings, fight a long and hard battle, and it's victory for Alfred and the Saxons. Jolly good. Saxons are back in power. England and Englishness is saved. So, Alfred's now got his kingdom, and this time he's not going to let the cakes burn. No. But he's got some challenges. The problem for the Saxons being there weren't really any way of rotating the military service for the people serving, so they were either serving or they had to be in the fields killing. Mm. So basically you have the same tired army running around after the Vikings the whole time. Right, yeah. And the Vikings just do their Blitzkrieg thing where they go in, do damage, get out again. So you yeah. don't actually get to stop them and fight them. Yeah. Also trade, of course, really suffers. Fields are untended by people having to go and fight. Trade is ruined by all the warfare. People aren't living in towns anymore because it isn't safe. So are they living? Uh, just in sort of small little hamlets. Kind of hamlets and communities mm. because it's not able to defend the towns. Danegeld is costly to pay, law and order barely exists, he's really king of a broken country. Mm. Broken Britain. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Saturn. Saturn. So, he has to deal with it. Rather than just slaughter or pay off the Vikings, what Alfred does, quite pragmatically, is give Guthrum... Well, first he baptises Guthrum. Hey, hang on, what? Is it, Guthrum's still hanging around? Guthrum's still not... He, had he didn't get it. killed in the battle, he gets captured. Right. So he's got him as a little pet... And he's got him as a pet. And, and he's just going to baptise him for... Why? Well, what he does, he baptises him and his men, and he gives him land in East Anglia. Okay. So you think, he's n- the Vikings aren't going anywhere, so rather than either pay them more money or just slaughter them, actually invest them in the kingdom a bit, mm-hmm. and just give them, give them a bit of land, that'll keep them happy. And be loyal, presumably. And be a bit more loyal. A bit more loyal than trying to kill you. <laughs> yes. It's better, yeah. Uh, and in 886, they agree uh, the Dane law... So it's a formal sort of separation of the country so that the Vikings effectively get the east and sort of the north. And we get the left. North east of England, we get the left and the south. Right. So, and that's Watling Street. Watling Street, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's Guthrum dealt with, but there could be other Vikings. Mm. Lots more coming in. So he reorganises the army so that you always have half at home doing the fields and half on duty. Um, starts the Saxon navy to defend coastal waters. Yeah, cool. It's quite cool. But the biggie is Burrs. Mm. Fortified towns, which are no more than 20 miles apart, which is about a day's march. Um, they're designed with very precise layouts, so they're sort of circuits which are measured so that you know how many troops you need to defend it, based oh, on wow. the size. That's all good. So it's all worked out. And it's designed so that um, the Vikings 
can't actually really get anywhere quickly. So you're only ever a day's march from another one. Mm. So you can quickly get reinforced. So the Vikings come in, there's a strong defence, and then they get reinforced. Mm. And then the Vikings, wherever they go, they're quite near to one of these. So in the last year of his reign, uh, 892 to 96, there was sort of a chap called Heiston brings over a huge army, uh, about 300 ships, two large and mobile armies in different places, but they're completely neutralised by the Burrs. Allies in London destroy the Viking fleet. They go all the way off chase to the Welsh borders, but they can't get over the Severn because Alfred's got mates in Wales who say, no, you're not coming here. Mm. So they all just have to disperse and run off. So the Burrs stop them being able to do what they used to do. So that's good. Well, that is good. But the other thing about the Burrs is that they're not just fortresses, but they're market towns. So they have have to be self-sustaining so you've got food production trade alfred designs the town layouts um, mm. specifically so actually some street layouts are still roughly visible today in my mind though it's like a roman camp you know that was divided mm. into quarters but and then uh, a circular palisade wall around it yeah it's probably well, okay probably about right right um, so we get trade flourishing again, we get taxes of course, which is good, because then you've got money coming in, it's a new way of living, it's back in towns, an urban way of life. Cool. And most famously of course is London, which had been abandoned, the Londinium, the Roman walled city, um, the Vikings were patrolling Ludenvik, which was kind of just outside of the central bit. Alfred retakes the city in 886, moves everyone back into the walls, Ludenvik becomes just arable land to support everyone in Londinium, and he inaugurates a new street plan. So it's the re-emergence of London. How long have it been abandoned for? Well, really, it's since all of these places, it's since the Romans left. So the sort like of 400 mid- years. century, yeah. So it's not that there's nobody there, it's just that they're not in a kind of a structured... Yeah, proper people using town. some of the old stuff yeah. and stuff. Right, OK. That's very good. London's but, a biggie. But it's not just the infrastructure that needs supported, it's people's... Learning their education, their souls need to be saved mm. because it's all gone a bit downhill. Monasteries been plundered by the Vikings. There's almost a complete drop in literacy across the country. So texts, even from places like Canterbury, where the monks are doing these translations and the language and grammar is so bad, it's almost incomprehensible. Even of the monks. Even the monks, because there's just they're not able to focus on it when you've got Vikings coming in. So it's de- yeah. degraded to that extent. That the only people who know how to do it are doing it badly. Yeah. So they're going to pass on bad knowledge. Yeah. So how does he solve that? Well, I'm glad you asked. He himself had probably been illiterate until his teenage years. Um, and there was a story that he had a fascination with books. So his mother had promised um, a book of poetry to whichever of the brothers could memorise the poem first. So Alfred had his teacher repeat it to him aloud. And then Alfred would just learn it mm. and put it back again. But to get everything moving nationally, he began improving stuff at court. So he basically headhunts scholars and clerics from across Europe, mm. and also Ireland and uh, Wales and places like that, which is where his biographer Asser comes from. He's Welsh. Yeah, right, cool. So they all come to the court so that they can then instruct people, basically, and then the learning can be spread to the rest of the country. Okay. Um, but the other problem, of course, is language. And as Alfred reflected, the law was first composed in the Hebrew language, and thereafter, when the Greeks learned it, they translated it all into their own language. Therefore, it seems better to me that we too should turn into the language that we can all understand certain books which are the most necessary for all men to know. So basically, he wants everybody to have certain wisdom, but he doesn't want it all to just be in Latin for the elites to read. He wants everybody to yeah. learn and grow with it. So he orders that all freeborn people not otherwise engaged should learn English. So illiterate judges who resist this are told they're going to lose their jobs if they don't learn how to be literate. Right, wow. So it's like, uh, that 
there isn't a similar law really until the 19th century when kids have to go to school up to the age of whatever it was 11 at the time mm. I mean this isn't this isn't like a national it's not like a schools for everybody but people in official positions oh so to, so his team his, his representatives have to yeah. build okay so sort of court officials uh, bishops judges mm. people who are running the show basically across people the country people should know anyway exactly yes <laughs> Um, and also, he uh, sets about translating these great works, these sort of Latin works, Roman works. But he's just got loads of his fellas in. He's got loads of his fellas in, but, you know, they're doing lots of other stuff. It's difficult to do. So he himself learns Latin. That's mental. He should have got one more person on <laughs> <there> <laughs> and said, translate that. He himself learns Latin so that he can translate it into English, send it to the bishops, and then the bishops can spread it to the, their people, and it he, goes out everywhere. He's on more money per hour than a translator. He should get a translator in. <laughs> and you think, given that he was illiterate in English until he was teenage years, and then mm. after fighting the Vikings for 20 years, and his, towards the end of his life, really, he's learnt Latin. The yeah, old dog. And he's effectively, incredibly unusually, really, a philosopher king. Is he because he, he, say well, he himself? doesn't just translate because he actually goes off script so his prefaces is really just him setting the world to rights and um so we get some of his thoughts on various things i was getting a bit bit nervous about this it's like henry VIII's music (laughs) you have to say oh that's lovely henry (laughs) Uh, so he reflects on friendship Mm. Uh, true friends are the most precious of all this world's blessings for in this world a man desires everything else because he may thereby acquire either power or worldly pleasure except a faithful friend one loves a friend sometimes out of affection sometimes out of trust even though no other return is expected from him but in this world's fortunes and its present wealth one makes enemies more often than friends oh i do like that though. that is nice it's nice and it's also a little hint at uh, the fact that he's he's not probably having a lot of fun <laughs> all this time he's got probably people betraying him he's got the vikings he's having to learn latin and yeah he's <laughs> not looking stuff. for fun though is he <laughs> probably not he looking is. to fun and indeed his uh, his legacy in effect what mm. he wants us to reflect on him is probably a good place to end with him what i set out to do was virtuously and justly administer the authority given me i desired the exercise of power so that my talents and my power might not be forgotten effectively saying vote for me yeah, yeah, yeah. please." <laughs> but every natural gift and every capacity in us soon grows old and is forgotten if wisdom is not in it to be brief i may say that it has always been my wish to live honorably and after my death to leave to those who come after me my memory in good works well i mean he definitely did he definitely worked towards that and he it's not just empty words no and he dies in 899 just 15 years old Oh, that's older than I But thought. it's not bad yeah. for the Saxons, though. No, not too bad, eh? Unfortunately, we're going to have to take a bit of a backward step now. It's Edward the First. Hooray! Born in 1239, which is 775 years ago. That's a lovely age. And he came to the throne in 1272 at the age of 33. Mm, yep. So mature, mature. And he's reasonable and... Yeah. His youth as Prince Edward... Uh, his father was Henry III, who was a very weak ruler, overreaching foreign policy, clashed with his nobles. Most famously of all, Simon de Montfort. Yeah. De Montfort believed that he needed to curb royal power, so we have the provisions of Oxford, which made Henry effectively subservient to a council of nobles. Mm. But conflict over this led to the Second Baron's War. In 1264, Edward is uh, fighting so against his father, defeats the opposing flank of with Simon de Montfort, uh, alongside yeah. his father, um, 
defeats the opposing flank of Simon de Montfort's army yeah. and chases it off the battlefield. Of course he does. And he chases it so far off the battlefield yeah. that he leaves the rest of the royal forces exposed and he and his father get imprisoned by Simon de Montfort. But what happens when he's imprisoned? <laughs> de Montfort, perhaps, or his captors, perhaps slightly naively, yeah. give Edward uh, various horses to try out. Yes, he does. And uh, he deliberately ties them all out. This so is... he does each one... Oh ties them all out, and then on the last one, he calls to his captors, Lordings, I bid you good day. Greet my father well and tell him I hope to see him soon to release him from custody. And storms off on the horse, and they can't chase him. Boom! That's fantastic. Well done, Eddie. He then goes off, links up with the Welsh marcher lords, captures all the western uh, cities of England along the Severn, trapping Simon de Montfort, losing um, yeah. all his places he might get support. Uh, besieges his younger son at Kenilworth mm. Castle and then intercepts Simon de Montfort himself at yeah. Evesham in 1265 tricked him by raising his son's banner that he captured from Kenilworth so mm. de Montfort thought oh it's my son mm. oh no it isn't <laughs> uh, mm. de Montfort is surrounded outnumbered defeated killed and mutilated Oi, that's now that's how you deal with rebellious barons. After this, Edward I pursues his greatest ambition, yeah. the Crusades. Yeah, he loves them. 1272, he goes off on the Ninth Crusade, but when he gets there, it's already not going particularly well. He's behind the curve with those, really, He is a bit. He? Allies negotiated a truce. He wanted to fight on, but he was attacked by an assassin. Mm. Um, a literal assassin. Assassin, mm. if you will. Uh, killed the assassin, which is pretty cool. <laughs> it's very cool. <laughs> uh, but was weakened when he was... Uh, hit with a poison dagger by the mm. assassin so he was very ill for quite a while um, saved by Aiken medics cutting off some of his blackened flesh and the rumour is that it was Eleanor who sucked the poison out there was a legend that she sucked the poison out other accounts suggest that she just got hysterical and had to be taken out yeah. but she certainly nursed him back to health afterwards yeah. um, but sadly for Edward his father Henry III dies mm. he'd recently Edward had lost uh, one of his young sons and wasn't too bothered about that mm. but very upset when his father died saying that it was easy to beget sons but when a man has lost a good father it is not in the course of nature for God to send him another he's right there he is indeed it uh, takes two years to get back to England so, so he's effectively king now. He's king now, but yeah. it takes him two years actually to get back. It takes so long, Eleanor actually conceives and gives birth to a child on the <laughs> way back. That's how long it is. But when he gets back, extravagant celebrations, great coronation, the first double crowning of the king and the queen together at the same time. Why? Well, just no one else had done it before. Oh. He did love her. He did, and it was the first use of St Edward's crown. So... What is Edward I like as a guy? Awesome! Mark Morris in his biography described him as a great and terrible king, which yeah. is probably a very good, very good. <laughs> way to summarise it. He's about six foot two, mm-hmm. much taller than contemporary, so he's nicknamed Longshanks. Uh, broad-chested, blonde-haired, said to have been quite handsome, though he had a drooping eyelid. Mm. And he uh, got very long arms, very long thighs, so it's very good for sword fighting and horse riding. Yeah, and climbing trees. <laughs> climbing trees, I don't know if he did that <laughs> quite as often. And he had persuasive speech, but a little bit of a lisp. And even in old age, never develops a stoop, never really loses his eyesight or the ability to readily mount a horse. Mm. So even in his 60s, he's still upright, jumping on the horse just as he's a man he's got he's got presence yeah he's got real presence Michael Prestwich said that he was not a man to be diverted from his purpose his succinct and sharp recorded utterances suggest a man of few doubts Mm. and again it's sort of like Alfred's got the religious thing going on Henry V 
and we'll see with Edward III. Edward the First, very much a person who's thinks, yeah, I know what I want to do. I'm going to do it. Yeah, and yeah. there's just nothing that's going to knock him off course. However, not all of his character traits are perhaps seen as just, uh, so nice. Uh, initially, he'd actually sided with Simon de Montfort in that conflict. He knew which side his bed was but the, the outcome was good. At Gloucester, uh, he sought a truce when the army approaching him was much larger than his own, mm-hmm. agreed to various terms, and when the army left, he just broke them all again. Quite right. And uh, at Evesham, of course, we had him showing the fake banners, which yeah. are seen as bad form wow. in battle. Uh, Song of Lewis uh, said that when he is cornered he promises anything you like but once he has escaped he goes back on his word for lying by which he gains his end he calls prudence whatever he wants he holds to be lawful and thinks that there are no legal bounds to his power I th- you know, I think I'm with him it was prudent <laughs> look at the outcome he was king and then he stopped the rebellion now Edward I is a Plantagenet and like all good Plantagenets he has an epic temper oh yes um, one occasion his hunting companion lost control of Edward's falcon and Edward was so cross that he chases him across a river with his sword drawn <laughs> until eventually forced <laughs> him to apologise. 1294, he was so terrifying in an argument that the elderly Dean of St Paul's died in his presence <laughs> just through That's sheer fear. Fantastic. <laughs> Uh, had to pay compensation to a page at one of his daughter's weddings after he hit him on the head, uh, receipts for repairs to one of his daughter's coronets, and he tore out his son, Edward II's hair, when he tried to promote his favourite, Piers Gaveston. He tore out his hair? Some of his hair. And he shouted at him. Grabbed him and pulled his hair. <laughs> yeah. Blow And he also has a bit of a reputation for brutality. Mm, yeah. uh, establishes a special death squad for Simon de Montfort at Evesham so they were seeking him out he wasn't yeah. going to get away alive and then his body was cut up and bits were sent across the country yeah. very part style very part style imprisoned two Scottish ladies in cages why? because uh, their husbands had rebelled against him Okay. he thought he's been considerate because he provided them with latrines well, that, I mean, that is better than not. <laughs> I'm really scraping the barrel there. 1304, he refused to let a garrison at Stirling uh, surrender until he tested out his new siege engine. Yeah. You so, got, I mean, you've got to test it, right? How else do you vote right testing? Exactly, exactly. People surrender. Yeah. You're never going to know. But he has some more laudable qualities. As you said, he loves his wife, mm. Eleanor of Castile, which is very unusual for the time. They're really devoted to each other. Uh, they both love travelling, so she accompanied him on the Crusades, mm. as we said. And they had an Easter tradition, which was quite cute, where he would be kidnapped by her ladies and of court, and he'd have to pay them a fine before he could make to bed with Eleanor. Um, I quite like about him. It's, it's unusual that he's called Edward, because it's a Saxon name, and he's yeah, named true. after Edward the Confessor. Um, he was probably teased by the Williams and the Richards and the Henrys of this world. But now we think of Edward as, as one of those type but of names. But it's because of yeah. Edward I, that's when it became... So you're saying he's a, a trendsetter as well? Well, his father was a trendsetter, mm. by calling him Edward. But what I like is that, because he does have the sense of a man who might have a chip on his shoulder, <laughs> so I like the idea that he was teased about it and then just thought, I'm going to prove you wrong. Yeah, I would, it doesn't seem wise to prove the future king of England if he's a plantagenet. And he has almost comical grumpiness, so the, the compensation to the page, the receipts for the damaged crown, is indicative of the fact that not just that he did something bad, but then that he had to sort of apologise afterwards. Yeah, that's quite sweet. It's a bit like Sir Lancelot in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. He goes running off killing people and then says, what you did? You put a sword in his head. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. Yeah. Uh, Incredible rages followed by, you know, he's straight back to normal. And I love the fact that he's he's so in love with Alan and yet you just cannot imagine this is a man that really gets women. Yeah, but that's what makes him different to Henry V or the uh, other really driven kings. Mm. He has 
has light and shade to his character. Soft side. Yeah, rather than just ruthless. But he doesn't have a lot of tact, so his second wife, um, when her sister died, um, Edward instructed somebody to break the news to the Queen as gently as possible. But if she became very upset, he was to say that she mustn't mind, as Blanche had been as good as dead for a long while. (laughs) (laughs) That's worthy of Charles. Second. (laughs) And Edward I goes on after this to have a pretty successful ten years or so. Really okay. impressive. In Wales, 1277, uh, Llewellyn Ap Griffith had refused to pay uh, Edward homage, even when he came all the way to Chester to receive it. Mm. Yeah, that's going to annoy you. I was too happy about that. No M6 in those days either. Launches a huge campaign, ships, wagons, craftsmen, over 15,000 troops. Uh, Penned Llewellyn down in Snowdonia... It got to winter when people usually give up and go home, but Edward carries on, maintains the supply lines, builds castles to... Oh, and what castles? <laughs> oh. Builds the castles to help maintain that supply line until Llewellyn finally agrees to do him homage. Mm. Historian Powick said it's probable that the English army was the best controlled as it was the best led that had been gathered in England since the Norman Conquest. Yeah, totally. And a new way of fighting warfare, to have a, a campaign force rather than letting everyone go home for harvest yeah. and... Can, you pay them a, a fee. And bringing all the workmen and the labourers yeah, to from get England. the infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. Wales rebel again, 1282 to 83. Uh, Dafford, the brother, and Llewellyn led a national uprising. Llewellyn was killed by uh, English troops. Uh, Dafford fought on through the winter, but was later captured. And then, of course, as always would happen to rebels, hung on and caught yeah. And so Wales has conquered. He's conquered Wales. And he's built some incredible castles. World Heritage Sites this day thoroughly recommend a visit. Your favourite? Oh, Bo Morris, but I hate you for asking. <laughs> Choosing between all of your many favourite oh, children. Yeah. Elsewhere, mm. outside of Athens, he rules pretty well. At the start of the reign, the revenues were still at £25,000 a year that was coming in for the court, which is the same as at 1130 levels. But mm. inflation means that this is reduced in value by about three times. Wow. Pretty bad stuff. Uh, there's a decline in royal land, income and ownership as well, but Edward... Reclaims lots of royal lands, raised huge sums from custom duties. He was getting £10,000 a year from wool alone. Wow! Mm. And what was it before for the entire year? 25000 wow. uh, And tax, very heavy taxation. In 1290, it was about £117,000 mm. taxation he was bringing in. And he found some bankers, the Ricardis from Luca, yeah. who were then able to give him various loans to pay for all of his campaigning. Mm. Mm. He rinsed them dry, didn't he? He really did. He's also a pretty good ruler for Parliament, uh, held every two years, accepted tax couldn't be levered without uh, the common assent of all the realm, mm. uh, which sets a precedent, as does the 1295 model Parliament. Uh, now, a model Parliament sounds awesome, and it's just the sort of thing a Rex Factor winner would do. I should say, this isn't Legoland when I'm talking <laughs> about model Parliament. <laughs> Uh, but what it sees is representatives, as well as the lords and the clergy, but also two knights, two burgesses and two citizens. Mm. And this sets a bit of a precedent. So from now on, it's the beginnings yeah. uh, that we'll see of a more regular sort of commons. Edward's pr- surprisingly patient with Parliament. Works with it pretty well, allows sessions to go on if they have to go on. So mm. he's not quite as uh, crazy and warlike in all spheres of no, his life. that's great, though. That's good. You're doing well for uh, subjectivity here, Edward. And he is nicknamed the English Justinian by uh, yeah. some later historians. Large number of laws made. Uh, statutes of Westminster covered lots of issues, including some like the freedom of elections, which is still in force. Yeah. Uh, statutes of Gloucester revived uh, royal heirs, which are justices that go on tour. And he also introduced quo ronto, which are rights to hold courts, which are lost the royal control, so lots of nobles are doing it, so Edward's trying to bring it back in-house, as it were, so that he's got more of a control over 
distribution of right, justice okay. across the country. Yeah. So lots of very good very stuff. Very good on. stuff. Full stop. In twelve ninety to ninety one, mm. however, we have perhaps the year that changes Edward the oh, First. Um, in twelve ninety, Eleanor of Castile, his beloved wife, dies. Oh, it's very sad. He is absolutely devastated. Uh, he says, "My harp is turned to mourning. In life, I loved her dearly. Nor can I cease to love her in death." Yeah. Um, her body is embalmed and travels from Lincoln to Westminster in twelve stages, and at each of those twelve stages, he erects a cross mm. known as the Eleanor Crosses. A mm. couple yeah. of which still. Yeah, or some tube stops are named after those. Charing crosses. Charing cross, uh, yeah. Also named after her. There is some other stuff going on, which is perhaps not quite the same. Mm. You know. uh, he does expel the Jews. There's that. Yeah, there's that. Uh, heavy taxation had drained the coffers of the Jews, and once he found the Ricardi bankers, didn't need them. Didn't need them anymore. And people, Parliament says, look, if we're going to keep giving all this tax, we need something back. Let's get rid of the Jews. And Edward I says, all right. And he does that. So all the Jews in England, about 3,000 of them, are expelled. So he's a sort of Pontius Pilate character here. Everyone's asking for it, and he agrees. I think it's fair to say that uh, he wasn't exactly... But it wasn't his idea. It wasn't his idea. Mm. But he did have the power to stop it. And 1291, he's still hoping to go back to the Crusades, but Acre falls, mm. and that is the end of the Crusades. So is this really Edward's grand ambition in life? Mm. And he hasn't actually been able to realise it. Yeah, he was. He, it was too late, wasn't it? He would have been great in sort of a hundred years earlier, eleven seventy mm. or something, in the Second and Third Crusades and stuff. Mm. Oh well, it doesn't quite compare to Richard Lionheart. No, but how rubbish was Richard? Well, not rubbish in the Crusades. <laughs> <laughs> we also have another death that's very important: Margaret, the Maid of Norway, mm. who was a Scottish queen. And she dies, which leaves a vacancy in the Scottish crown. There's really no obvious person now to fulfil the role. So they would have been happy to have a queen? Well, they just did not have anybody else. They mm. absolutely didn't have anybody else. And uh, the magnates in Scotland made a slightly fateful decision to ask Edward to arbitrate. Why would they have done that? Well, because um, it was going to be the case that his son, Edward II, was going to marry Margaret. Right. And so, and, you know, he's seen as a respected ruler. He's a disinterested party. <laughs> Perfectly trustworthy. Yeah, absolutely. You can always rely on Edward I yeah. to uh, play it straight. <laughs> he eventually chooses John Balliol as the king, but increasingly seeks to dominate Scottish affairs. 1296, when Balliol finally gets fed up and rebels, Edward takes an army of 26,000 to Berwick, forces Balliol's surrender, strips him, and effectively Scotland, of its royal insignia, and steals the Stone of Scone. Yeah. Which is this ancient stone that kings used to be crowned on. But it's not all plain sailing. He suffers a series of crises. In Wales, Madog at Llewellyn, 1294-95, rebels. Mm. Just can't stop these guys. Yeah, yeah. Captures various castles, including Carnarvon. It was in the process of being built. Harlock was also besieged and in danger of falling. It was down to about just 37 men defending it. Mm. Edward goes up to Conway to help things out, but he himself gets besieged. Yeah. Until he gets relieved by the Navy in 1295. Can't help but feel that besieging Edward I in one of his Welsh castles is a bit like putting a paper cup over a very big and angry wasp. Yeah, yeah totally. And the castle that he's built, it's, a, it's very modern yeah. at the absolute top of its game. And, of course, it's defeated. In France, however, Philip IV, King of France, declares uh, the English territory of Gascony forfeit and under French rule. Why? He just wants it back, he's not getting the money. Edward only gets it back 
by marrying Philip's uh, half sister Margaret. Oh, and he does—he's not up for that, is he? Well, they do—they do all right, yeah. but he isn't able to win it back mm. in battle. Well, he had other things on his plate, didn't he? He's got the Welsh going on. He's like, all right, well, I'll marry her, I'll give it back. Fine. How impressive is it for a medieval king that he can't defend his territory in France because he's got to deal with Wales? Well, and Scotland at the same time. I mean, and he's, de- he's dealt with Wales. He's sitting in his castle. He's got getting the letters through. He says, well, I'll marry her. That's that done. Easy. <laughs> Parliament isn't too happy. The financial burden of wars is pretty significant. There's only about a million pounds in circulation at this time, but 1294 um, and these next four years, 98, the fighting cost about 750,000 pounds. Mm. The Italians have stopped paying the loans because he's not paying them back. Yeah, who knew? <laughs> Extensive opposition to Quo Veronto. He had to adjourn it in the end to keep the peace. 1297, nobles refused to accompany him to a campaign in Flanders. And they're putting remonstrances ahead of him. There's a sense, perhaps, of almost a Simon de Montfort-style mm. situation developing. Well, it was a trend in those days, wasn't it? There's lots of bands from revolts. But worst of all, in 1298, at Stirling Bridge, William Wallace in Scotland cuts off English troops and slaughters an English army. He had a lucky win and one battle, and everyone goes ahead and makes a movie about it. What happens to his escape from Kenilworth? That's make that a film. <laughs> the upshot of this is that he reunites the English nobles because they've now got a common, more important enemy. Yeah. Mm. So Edward, of course, reconfirms Magna Carta abolishes the extra wool duty, agrees no more tax without consent, and sets about invading Scotland. No, that's north. Exactly. At 1298, the Battle of Falkirk, he makes York the centre of his government. The night before the battle, uh, his own horse trod on him. Really? And he broke a couple of ribs. I did not know that. But obviously he still fights the next day. Yeah. uh, Scots get caught in the pincer movement, destroyed by cavalry. Wallace and other Scottish nobles flee. Uh, At 1305, William Wallace is captured... Yeah. Brutally executed, yeah. of course, and Scotland is subdued. Oy. He is the hammer of the Scots. He totally is. Until 1306, when Robert the Bruce declares himself king of, king of Scotland and leads another national uprising. Yeah. For that brief period, he'd done it. 1307, Edward leads the campaign, but catches dysentery. Oh, poor chap. Like his grandfather, King John, and dies at the age of 68. It's unfinished business, but he did achieve it. There was another uprising, much like there was in Wales. And uh, we'll get onto this and that in this, but <laughs> yeah, he would have put it down. He'd have sorted it out. Finally, Edward III. Mm-hmm. Edward I's grandson, of course. Yeah. But they would never have met because Edward III was born in 1312, five years after Edward I uh, first died, 702 years ago. Yeah. And he comes to the throne in 1327 at just 14 years old. Yeah, no good. Minority, difficult. Um, his father, Edward II, hugely unpopular and divisive king with hated favourites. Edward's wife, Edward II's wife, Edward III's mother, Isabel of France, angered at the poor treatment that she was receiving from her husband, being usurped by male favourites. So she takes her son, Edward III, to France and wins support for an invasion of England. And she also wins for herself... A lover in the form of Roger Mortimer, mm. uh, a marcher lord, rebel, who'd escaped the Tower of London. Uh, he effectively leads this usurpation of Edward II, mm. and Edward agrees to abdicate in favour of his son, and then probably had a red-hot poker stuck up his bottom. Yeah, nasty way to go. Edward III is king, but he's only 14 years old, and really, Mortimer has got complete mm. control. Um, shares lordships ac- among his family. Edward III's uncle, Duke of Kent, is executed... And there fears that Mortimer is starting to really get pretensions of grandeur. He's riding alongside Edward III rather than behind him. He's almost styling himself as king. There's a fear that perhaps he's hoping to actually do away with Edward 
and rule by himself. So he's becoming all-powerful, but Edward III is made of stern stuff, and he's not very happy with the situation. He's furious in 1328 when um, Mortimer makes a peace contract with Robert the Bruce. Right. Recognising Scotland as an independent kingdom. Edward refuses um, Mortimer's bid to return the Stone of Scone. Mm. So he's not giving that That's quite progressive Mortimer, though. Mm. Um, And Edward starts to get some allies. He gets married to Philippa of Hainaut, so he gets a confidant. Um, He gets a son in 1330, um, and also a trusted friend in a young knight, William Montague. And together they plot to overthrow Mortimer. Uh, But they decide they're going to overthrow him. As uh, Montague says, better to eat dog than be eaten by the dog. Uh, so Montague and 24 other young knights pointedly leave Nottingham Castle mm. where Edward's being held um, only to return at night at the foot of the mound of the castle the castle keeper shows them a secret entrance mm. so they go in there climb up this steep pitch black tunnel come out in the heart of the castle where Edward's waiting for them storm in overpower the guards and arrest uh, Mortimer before he can draw his sword cool and Mortimer is put before Parliament sentenced to death and hung drawn and quartered at Tyburn hey. and Edward is king Mortimer, uh, his sort of period of rule, probably left Edward uh, also desperate to prove himself. Because mm. it's, it's quite emasculating to be king, really, yeah. just being a puppet, really. And he feels a very strong affinity with his fa- uh, grandfather, totally. Edward I. Uh, made legends. regular gifts to his grandfather's tomb, and he prized as a relic uh, the assassin's knife. Oh, right. That uh, hadn't killed Edward, yeah. so he still got that. And cool. Shares that rigid sense of self-belief mm. and uh, sense of destiny. Uh, like Athelstan, he's a relic collector, he's quite religious. Mm. Um, but he's not a philosopher like Alfred, he's a bit more straightforward in his yeah. religious beliefs. There was a prophecy of uh, six kings, of whom Edward III is the last one. It compares them each to an animal. Okay. And Edward's the last in this line, and he's characterised as a boar who will come out of Windsor. Right. Uh, so interesting, we've got Alfred and Edward III boasted boars. Oh, I thought you meant as in a boring person. No. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's, he's such a bore. Yeah. This kid. This kid. It, honestly, like, social cyanide. Yonorama. Mm. So he's a bore, a wild boar that's going to come out of Windsor. And the significance is that King Arthur, the legendary king, was the boar who came out of Cornwall. Mm. So he's effectively being seen as a, a new Arthur almost and um, so he's got this Arthurian heir to him in this prophecy and he absolutely plays up to this he very much wants to be a military king as a young man builds lo- uh, buys lots of armor likes to be seen wearing it and then at court he unites his nobility which had been uh, broken under Edward II and there's this new culture of courage of togetherness it's effectively the Camelot of mm. the medieval world he actually considered even actually building a round table Host regular tournaments with pageantry, combats um, to exercise as training, but also bonding mm. between all of his knights. He had something like 55 between 1327 and 1357. Cool. So he's doing it very regularly. Um, he introduces a new top peerage rank, the dukedoms. Yeah. And, of course, the Order of the Garter, a fellowship of his 26 greatest men, the membership criteria, of course, being honour in war. Yeah, which is still very strong. Indeed. Less so for the honour in war, isn't yeah. it? Which is criteria, but... Um, and he's also a great patron of architecture. He really refurbishes uh, Windsor Castle, turns it into mm. the Grand Royal Palace that it is today. Court resplendent with pageantry, colours and costumes. He also encourages a lot of indulgence and licentiousness. And he encourages it. He encourages it. He wants people to have a good time. Yeah. He's got his mates. They're all having fun together. Do you know what it reminds me of? Have you ever seen... Um, that Disney film 
of Robin Hood where of Robin's course. a fox. Yes. Uh, it's just that sort of era of medievalness. I know that's obviously completely <laughs> fictional and <laughs> animals <Yes. laughs> and Robin Hood. But and King John. Yeah, and King John, but it's, it's that sort of... I mean, King John's reign seems really dull, but this one seems just like that film, all full of colour and there's yeah. always a fair going on, and yeah. it's just adventure. Exactly. Uh, he rules well as well. He's merciful to uh, his former English en- enemies. No other recriminations after Mortimer's rule. Restores a grandson to his titles. More consultative, uh, consultative with Parliament. He's quite a capable negotiator, able mm. to back down when he has to back down. But he needs some successes. Mm-hmm. to actually prove himself. This can't just all be for show. Totally. And in 1333, at the Battle of Halidon Hill, Robert the Bruce had died in 1329. So Edward is now thinking, OK, we can re-establish we can our do dominance this, here over yeah. Scotland. He's besieging Berwick when he's attacked by a larger Scottish army, but the English are on top of the hill. They've got their longbowmen. Mm-hmm. The Scots taken out uh, by the longbows, and then Edward III leads the charge into hand-to-hand combat, and it's a great victory for England. That's pretty good. Re-establishes dominance. Mm-hmm. But the real biggie is going to come over the sea. Oh, yes. In France. Totally. It's the Hundred Years' War. The reason for the Hundred Years' War? Mm. Charles IV of France died without a male heir, so a new Valois dynasty was established, and Edward refused to do homage for his territory of Gascony, mm. which Edward I did. Back, all that yeah. sort of thing. And so he just claimed the throne for himself on the basis that his mother, Isabella, was the daughter of the previous king. Makes sense. It's a pretty good claim to yeah. the throne on English law. Um, and of course, he needs glory, he needs war, he needs something to give the nobles to unite behind. Yeah. And it's a perfect way to do it. Cool. War with France. There's some early struggles. He tried to uh, do diplomacy with European leaders, but it doesn't really come to anything. Mm. They can't really rely on them. Um, the mini crisis in Parliament at how much it's costing to have this unsuccessful war, but then the victories start to come. <laughs> 1340, the Battle of Sluy. Philip VI had a huge fleet ruling the Channel. So really damaging English trade, but Edward's determined to get across, despite being vastly outnumbered, so he does it. He's got about 120 ships and 12,000 men against 200 ships and 19,000 men. Wow. Really outnumbered, but uh, lay anchor overnight near the French fleet until the sun, wind and tide are all behind him. Mm -hmm. He then attacks, crashes his ships into the French ships. English longbowmen on the ships, firing, taking out the French... Uh, on the decks um, Edward is standing on top of the deck shouting out orders seen by everybody a spear actually stri- uh, lodges in his a thigh spear? at one point he actually gets speared <laughs> yes. do they use spears? I guess they wow. do or some kind of uh, yeah. spiky thing spiky thing lots of spiky things being thrown around but they fight on again hand to hand combat and it's an incredible English victory about 17,000 Frenchmen are killed or drowned wow. and 166 ships captured he does have a naval battle over his grandfather doesn't That's he which an awesome is pretty good battle yeah, yeah. Mm, very nice very good the most famous of course is in 1346 and Cressy yeah uh, Edward lands in Normandy symbolically of course mm. and uh, goes around plundering France until Philip VI comes out to do battle with him and they do do battle once again vastly outnumbered about 35,000 Frenchmen against 15,000 Englishmen it's always the way it's but we've got war. the longbowmen yes do a huge amount of damage um, something like 5,000 archers firing each firing 6 arrows a minute mm. which meant something like 30,000 arrows a minute yeah are being fired Black, uh, block out the sun exactly said to be like snow falling 15 French cavalry charges get broken down wow only one gets through and that's then dealt with by the knights yeah 
and it is an overwhelming English victory. Only 300 losses, there's thousands of French casualties, many of whom are nobles and knights and barons and counts. Uh, and of course, he has these incredible heroic knights. Mm. It's the knights of the Round Table. Yeah, yeah. A few examples. Uh, there's one chapter to Thomas Holland. Distraught to find a bridge at Rouen, which was giving access to uh, French troops, had been destroyed. So he just went off looking for some Frenchmen, killed the couple that he managed to find, and then went back to the broken bridge and bellowed, St George for King Edward! at these Bermuda Frenchmen on the other side. <laughs> weird. Yeah. They're just desperate for adventure. Yeah, yeah. They're just seeking it out. They're just looking for somebody mm. to fight. Yeah, so well. you can have a little bit of glory. While he's in Cressy, uh, David II of Scotland tried to capture Durham. Oh, right. But the Archbishop of York musters an army, invokes the memory of St Cuthbert, defeats the Scots, and captured The David. Archbishop? Yeah. That's very practical of a bishop. It's very practical. So you've got Edwards doing the business in France, as are his knights. You've got the bishops doing business at home. Yeah. He's, he's built a Delegating, pretty successive yeah. court. I think my favourite story, and I think your favourite story as well... Oh, I know who it is. ...at Calais. 1347, he captured Calais with an army of 32,000, the largest ever raised in the Hundred Years' War. And they had a truce with France, but Philip planned to take it back secretly. Mm-hmm. Edward finds out about this and uh, makes his way over to defend it. Only it's not got many men, it's just a few knights that are there hiding in, hiding in the castle. Some French scouts snuck into the castle to see if there's anybody there, only to be confronted with a rather grim-looking knight breathing heavily. And he then shouts at them, Money! <laughs> I need to the rescue! <laughs> and he goes charging off to take on the entire army by himself until yeah. he realises there aren't any more of them. Says, what? Do they hope to conquer the castle of Calais with so few men? And it's three scouts. Just some scouts. So they right. imprison the scouts, and then they prepare for the actual attack. Edward's unmarked at this point, so he's kind of there incognito under the banners of Sir Walter Manny. Um, they're behind this false wall as the French approach. Yeah. It's about 800 Frenchmen, so they're probably outnumbered about 20 to 1. Yeah. But, nevertheless, Edward III leads the charge and they go running off yeah. at the Frenchmen. French are a little bit confused by what's going on, particularly when Edward lifts his visor and shouts, St. Edward and St. George! So everybody knows it's the king. Yeah. The Black Prince, his son, is there as well, so his army joins in and this quite small English army just charges at the French, who are so confused by it all that they get routed and captured. That's amazing. See, that is very Rex Factory, isn't it? And if that wasn't enough, he then hosts the French leaders for dinner that night. <laughs> <laughs> so he actually had the English knights waiting waiting on their captured really? French counterparts. Yeah. Well, and just sort of saying, very fine sword work earlier today. Exactly, because they want the stories to be told back in France of their legendary heroics yeah. and things like this, so they're buttering up their enemies. That's fantastic. <laughs> Uh, of course, I've just mentioned that his beloved son, the Black Prince, is also pretty impressive. After 1350, 1350, Edward pretty much retires from the battling stuff. And why is he called the Black Prince? Because his armour? Probably his armour, we yeah. don't totally know. And he has a great victory at Poitiers, where he captures King John II of France, and also against the Castilians at Nigeria. And the real pinnacle for Edward is 1360, the Treaty of Brittany. He relinquishes his claim to the French throne. But in return, he gives ownership of Calais, Gascony, and an enlarged Aquitaine. So it's about a quarter of France. And I think yeah. we know which side of France it is. It's going to be the left. It's the left. So, everything stops at this point, and we have just got the perfect king. Yeah, he's, he's very good. But it doesn't stop at this point. Mm. There's a bit of a darker side to some of these events. Um, he effectively sanctions total warfare in France, so his troops are plundering, burning, and raping their way through France, and it's deliberate in 1346. They want mm. to provoke the king into 
battle. And it's interesting if we compare it to Henry V, who we criticise for being the robot, mm. but actually he does try and control his troops. As long as the place is surrendered, he tries to control them. Yeah. As Edward is, yeah, it's yeah. a bit more just rampage. Okay. It's also, in a way, the death of chivalry, because the archers and cannons that he also uses is really the death knell for the sort of heroic knights on horseback. That's true. It's the end of that, isn't that's it? That's what it does for the French, is that they're still fighting in the more romantic fashion. That's why I like Edward I. It's, it's, it's the peak of that type of warfare. Mm. Mm. Before it all gets a bit mechanical. powdery. Mm. yeah. Um, of course, huge costs throughout the reign. Um, it's only affordable at all because of the victories early on, but it leaves pretty damaging legacy for the successors mm. to have to deal with. And in 3848, we have the Black Death. Yeah, nice. Not his fault. Uh, bubonic and pneumonic plagues kill something like a third of the population. Yeah, heavy. Economy recovered, uh, recovered quite quickly, but the workers then had the advantage because there's more... Um, yeah demand than there is supply mm. so parliament passes the ordinance of labourers fixing wages at pre-plague levels that's so horrid and saying they can't move yeah the statute of labourers prevents them from migrating mm. so they're meant to just stay put so they can't just go somewhere else for a better, do- a better stay job stay put and um, pittance mm. and we then have the decline and fall of the Edward Empire oh. the old generation start dying off Montague in 1344 is quite early on, but only three of the 26 original Garter Knights survive Edward. And he doesn't really have that much affinity with the new men, and they're not of the same quality as those before. His family also start dying off. His sister in 1362, his second son Lionel, 1368. Lionel? (laughs) This is a bit like um, uh, Saved by the Bell, the new class, and it's never the same. And you've got poor old... um, Screech is still there. Yeah. But it's not right. Yeah. Yeah. Philippo's wife dies in 1369. He's one of his grandsons in 1370. And then his beloved son, the Black oh. Prince, debilitated from 1367 and dies oh, in 1376 with Edward III as his bedside. Mm. And unfortunately in France, they have a new king, Charles V, who's rather more capable and warlike mm. than his predecessor. He transforms the French army into an effective fighting force, wins back the lost ground, and Edward is just left with Calais and Gascony. As, as it was. As it was. He's back where he started. Mm. All those glories. It's but just it's gone. a big adventure. And Edward himself suffers ill health at the end of, his, uh, end of his reign, broken by the deaths of friends and family, debilitated by a series of strokes, so his mental capacity is probably quite declined. Mm. So he's probably not really capable of ruling in his final years. Withdraws from public life, falls under the spell of a notorious mistress, Alice Perez. Yeah, what does she do? Uh, she's seen as controlling him, getting political influence so she can become wealthy and give herself some land. Mm. Um, 1376, the good parliament felt strongly enough to actually banish her from court. It's called the good parliament because they're sort of rescuing him. Yes, yeah, so they impeach corrupt officials. It's the longest to have sat and also the first one where there's a speaker. Oh, right. Uh, but in 1377, John of Gaunt introduced the bad parliament, which reverses the impeachments, introduces a poll tax, and he paid himself a back salary of £6,000. <laughs> oh, dear. And in 1377, Edward III died at the age of 65 after suffering a final stroke with just one priest at his bedside. Oh, that's so sad. It's really sad. It's like the glory that we had of King Arthur, and Arthur's story ends in tragedy, and so does Edward III. Yeah. So those are the lives and reigns of the three monarchs. Three very impressive characters. Big, big hitters, massive personalities, big events in each of their reigns. So now we're going to quickly go through Mm. all the different factors and then really debate who is going to come out on top. Yeah. Battleliness! 
Yeah, this is where they excel. They've all done it. They've all got good stuff. Um, Alfred, of course, Ashdown, where he's the wild boar, but particularly Eddington. Mm. That all-or-nothing battle, where if he loses, it's all gone. Yeah, he's he's definitely got, over the other two, a um, the type of battle that, as you say, is all-or-nothing. It threatens the entire kingdom, mm. and he has to win his high stakes. The other one's high stakes because otherwise they're adventures. Yes. Uh, fail. <laughs> yeah. This is, yeah. yeah, this is it. Because, yeah, because for all of Edward III's incredible, glorious mm. feats, in a way, does it It doesn't matter in the same way that no. Eddington does. No, it's like it's like he's uh, the best at jousting or something. It's, mm. it's of no consequence, really. But uh, I mean, history might have proved it as no com- consequence because it reverted back to because it, it was. stayed. Then. Yeah, then it would have been seen as a massive conquest. And as it was, it's just a little jolly. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Alfred also has the innovation with the burrs, which is very impressive. Very good, yeah. And that's the stepping stone from which um, Edward the Elder and then, of course, Athelstan are able to build. Yeah. What, was, what did I call him? Alfred the Sufficient? Yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, t- maybe a bit harsh, do you think? That? Well, I, I don't know. I think I was comparing against Athelstan, mm. who, in my mind, it was Alfred the Great. <laughs> Everything Alfred the Great was meant to be. It was Al- um, Athelstan. We're not doing him... And looking at him in isolation, it's good, you know, it's there. And it's interesting, if we're going to make the Athelstan comparison, mm. if we're to compare him to Edward the First, because mm. Athelstan, of course, gets the submission of the King of the Scots. When he doesn't toe the line, he storms up to Caithness, raids and comes back. He goes over to Wales and says, look, do we really have to do this? I'm king, right? And they say, yeah, all right, you're king. Yeah. So... In a way, he's uh, found a more effective means of dealing with these enemies, whereas Edward I had to spend all this money on the castles, his huge campaigns, troubles with the Scots, and yet Athelstan did it pretty easily. It's a different approach, (laughs) but I think if Athelstan could have built those incredible castles, he would have done. And it's just his character that he wanted wanted a conquest, he wanted to do it Hmm. properly. I think maybe if he had less money, he would have just, just tried and been more political with it, but why not? Would he have been more successful in Scotland if he hadn't spent so much in Wales? Oh, possibly, yeah. But he didn't know it was going to happen. That's true. Um, and and he was, he was. I mean, he did. He he subdued them. Um, Edward, of course, does have quite an important battle at Evesham. He isn't king at the time, but that's where he defeats Simon de Montfort, and yeah. then cuts him up. And that is crucial because if he'd lost that battle, where would the monarchy have oh, been? Oh, a comparison to Alfred. Yeah, yeah, not as crucial in terms of England, and I suppose you could say that without winning that battle, maybe parliamentary democracy would have started <laughs> a thousand years earlier. But that was an important battle. If he lost that battle, that would have been pretty yeah, serious for true. the dynasty. He's got that. And, of course, that glorious escape that he does Incredible. beforehand. Yeah, it's pretty so, awesome. good. so good. And Edward I has really got that presence. You really, That's a man you yes. do not want to irk. I really like your description of him. Mm. It was so good. And I think that um, Edward III, I imagine, is, um, can be described in a similar way. He inherited his grandfather's mm. um, looks and characteristics, really, and he's sort of yeah. tall and upright. And, um, but, yeah, just like a, like a terrifying headmaster, yeah. <laughs> but one with lethal force. He will kill you. Yeah. Edward III, the tricky thing, of course, with him is that do we kind of take him at the the glory years of Cressy mm. and Sluy and Calais and all mm. that incredible stuff or, or is that all undermined by the defeats that come after? I think it has to be really you've got to look at the whole thing I mean it was it was so good uh, yeah I mean it's like 
The Beatles never went and embarrassed themselves throughout the 70s and 80s yeah. <laughs> because of a death. And if only, uh, 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 you know, if only it had stopped. Mm. Living. Ten, yeah, if it, if it had copped it then, passed it on to Edward III. Fourth. Uh, and, and, and it would have been backwards. Yeah, it would have been marvellous. Uh, but you've got to look at the whole thing, and yes, not so good. And it kind of like, in, in the same way that Edward I died mid process mm. it wasn't a, there was no great defeat he sorted the Welsh mm. out they uprised again we sorted them out again sorted the Scots out and he was on the way to sort out yeah. again um, and he died but Edward said it's just all gone mm. and he almost get the sense that a couple of years before, after 1350 but later 1360s where he was sort of thinking about going on a campaign but events conspired it was almost as if he wanted to die on campaign like Edward the yeah, he needed yeah. to go out with some kind of that was the way bang. to go in those days yeah. surely but still Cressy all of that stuff the knights Walter Manny that's the naval battle. Oh, yeah, very, very cool. If very you're cool. ignoring the slaughter of all the French people and mm. horrors of war for just sheer boys' own adventure stuff, it doesn't get any better than it. Yeah, no, it? it's um, Robin Hood as a fox. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, so, how does Alfred die again? Uh, just the ill health. So they're all ill health? Well, ultimately, that's likely to be a common theme for a lot <laughs> of people. <laughs> but none of them, given that they're warring ones. Yeah, none, none of them die in battle, no. But Edward's the one that dies on campaign. Of dysentery. Yeah. Like King John. Mm. But on <laughs> campaign, with, and he'd have loved it. Well, he wouldn't have loved the dysentery <laughs> dying. He'd go, this is this brilliant. Pass <laughs> the toilet roll. Um, not uh, demeaning dysentery, which is still a terrible, terrible problem. He gets to live his warrior role more effectively. Pretty much I mean, to the end. Yeah, and having gone on crusade as well, yeah, crusade was winding down, but... He, he, that's a massive box tick it's a bit of a rubbish crusade yeah but that's that's the Richard the Lionheart gets within 12 miles of Jerusalem yeah he's and he is behind the curve he just sits in a tent all day yeah and never really gets there but he, never, the, he effectively doesn't even get out of bed on his crusade <laughs> yeah and it's the it's the end of the crusades and he sort of missed that window but as a medieval king that's sort of the thing you expect them to have done Still to went. have had that adventure but Edward III is the only one with the battle that we still remember with the Armada equivalent with mm. with the with Poitiers yeah. or with Cressy rather mm. um, and that you know that's one that school children still know it is and do you want to have a word about Edward first Welsh castles they're just perfect and if it wasn't for his crusade he would never have found um, James of St George on his trip back through France master builder yeah I mean just, they're just perfect is, is, you get all of, I mean we've done this before but you get the absolute peak of castle design you get someone with gives a, an amazing designer unlimited money and a completely <laughs> fresh site they're not working around some other bodge job that the Normans yeah. threw up in ten weeks or whatever it took yeah. them and just say build the best possible castle money no object and they do and they're just amazing and they're beautiful so there's a lot of impressive battliness there. Yeah. And I think, it, like with all these things, I think you're just going to have to take your pick of what is more impressive. Is it the the significance of Eddington and Alfred and the Burrs and all he does there? Is it the 
might, the Welsh castles and the campaigns and the sheer presence of Edward I. It's got to be, hasn't it? I mean, uh, the... <laughs> or <laughs> is it the adventure and boy's own stuff of Cressy and uh, the Arthurian Edward III? That gets lost, though. That gets lost, but... Last thing, that the Alfred stuff. The reason I find it boring is that when all his success, they just sound like... They're even called burrs. They just sound no. like he built some mud mounds. <sighs> Well, I mean, let's rephrase that as he refounded the city of London. Yeah, there we go. But not a big castle. And, of course, the thing I forgot to mention, which you always like, is that at Wareham, one of the remnants of the burrs was used as anti-tank defence. I do like that. Wall. That is very cool. So that's a good defensive yeah. structure. Yeah, that is very cool. He's built something 1,200 years before <laughs> yeah. the invention of the tank that we presumed could have stopped a panzer. <laughs> Fantastic. Scandal. Surprisingly, actually, they're all pretty weak at Scandal. Yeah. None of them have really got it. Alfred, maybe as stuff that we just don't know about because he didn't want us to know about it, thought perhaps to have been highly sexed in his youth, feared that his illness, as we said, was a Mm. punishment from God. So he had a real hang-up about carnal lust. Mm. He actually prayed to be relieved of his urges. Right. Which on the one hand you didn't like because it was a combination of piety and yeah. not scandal. On the other hand, as I think someone in the first round comments said, that you can't have that much of a hang-up about something yeah, without having totally. some pretty yeah. serious uh, no naughtiness s- in the closet. Smoke without nuns. Yeah. <laughs> Edward I, he's a bit treacherous. He's a bit brutal. D- very much deserves his status as the baddie in Braveheart. Well, he's got to be a baddie, surely. He's he's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> he's. I can see what you mean. Like, he, if you were, if you wanted to take that slant, it'd be very easy to paint him <laughs> that picture. But if you're doing a film about Edward the First, he would be hell of an adventurer. Mm. Um, yeah, he'd just sort of take any option open to him. To but is it scandalous? Is it all it's scandalous? We've really got the expulsion really. of the Jews. Of course, it's pretty unpleasant. Yeah, it's pretty unpleasant. Yeah. But. He was entirely faithful to Eleanor of Castile. Yeah. So, you know... You've got I don't know why I find that sweet when anyone yeah, else exactly. has gone... Oh. Yeah, for Alfred, I mean... <laughs> Bias, perhaps. No, I suggest. don't believe it. Don't believe it, chaps. Edward III, Alice Perez in his later years was quite notorious, and there's that brutal plundering and pillaging in France. And he does encourage a bit of a licentious court. He wants people to have some fun. Mm. But again, he's generally quite faithful and devoted to Philippa of Hainaut. There isn't really any actual no. substantial no. stuff there. So none of them really get or up in. to much monkey business. Hmm. Subjectivity. Well, there's stuff to go on here for Alfred. Yeah, he does. Well. He makes an effort, perhaps more than any other monarch in terms of doing stuff for the good of his people. Mm. He does it. He tackles the Viking uh, threat with the burrs, as we said, not just fortresses, but market towns. Mm. Reinvigorates urban living as a way of life. Which it's, it's hard to kind of grasp that, really. But you think after the Romans, it's not safe to live in towns, since Alfred's the one that finds a way to make towns a viable option again. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm not giving him many points, because I don't like what they'd have looked like. Because it's all wood and mud. <laughs> yeah. It's not quite as impressive, but uh, for, for the time, mm. yeah, jolly good. And it's that influence of what he sees in Rome. And of course, it means he doesn't actually get to enjoy all the splendour that he sees in Rome. So it's all quite hard. He's, he's suffering yeah. for all of this, but he's doing the hard work so that others can build mm. on it. Mm. Um, of course, the learning, the scholars that he brings to court, learning Latin so that he can translate it. 
it's a pretty decent thing to do. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. It is good. <laughs> and he's he's got a vision of this united Anglo-Saxon England. So although he doesn't complete the process, he's the one that sort of starts. Yeah, it. he sets it up for Athelstan to actually do Athelstan the Great. Athelstan, who he invests himself, of course. Yeah, and is a big influence on Athelstan, of course. I, I think he should have been called Alfred the Ready or Alfred the Prepared or ready for then Athelstan to be called the Great. Alfred the Ready, who then delivered us from defeat from the Vikings, built a whole new way of living, refounded the city of London, translated great works into English for the English people, and set about a vision for a future England from which all our future glories are based. And Athelstan (laughs) comes along and gets all the glory, and he's brilliant. Uh, So that's Alfred, pretty good stuff. Edward... He's a, he's a strong ruler, mm-hmm. and he is respected by contemporaries. He sorts out, initially, a way of getting money to pay for stuff. Mm-hmm. He has all this legislation that he does. He tackles law and order, national inquiry to look at uh, corrupt officials, tries to get a bit more royal authority with the Quo Ronto system, parliament, as you said, the yeah. model parliament yeah. and all those meetings, establishes the fact that you have to get that sent for the taxation. You can't just arbitrarily it's brilliant. throw it around. Yeah. That's good. But we do have the financial burden, the fact that he's not actually paying off his loan, so he ends up in debt, which isn't very good for his successor. He isn't able to make the Quaronto thing stick, Mm. so he loses some of that. And 1297, he does have a bit of a constitutional crisis with all the stuff building up, the lack of money, the nobles refusing to go on campaign. He reconfirms Magna Carta, which is good. He does these various concessions, which is good, but he is forced to do it, so he, he does get to a little bit of a precipice. It seems to get to a sticky point, doesn't it? And then, mm. and then it re- then it reverts, and he goes. And then Edward III, also pretty consultative with Parliament, also uh, delegates quite a lot in terms of law and order, tries to get uh, a bit more uh, justice again, roving courts, trying to make them a little bit better. Um, again, national unity, using war as a means of getting all the nobility behind him. Mm. And bearing in mind his father had, had ended up with the poker up his bottom, mm. you know, and he was under the rule of Mortimer. Yeah. He comes from a pretty impressive place. He's pretty much the only king who comes from a minority to be very successful. Oh, right. It's so hard to actually do it. Yeah, to prove yourself afterwards. But he actually manages it. And, of course, the glorious victories in the Hundred Years' War is quite important for national identity, like it was Henry V. English becomes the official language of the law. Mm. And we have that cultural patronage, like Windsor Castle. Um, he introduced mechanical clocks to England. Ah, that's great fact. Yeah. What year was that? When, when was he? 1327 to 77. Early. Yeah. And uh, a court with all that sort of Arthurian pageantry as well going on. Mm. So, you know, it's pretty good fun. But, again, the cost of war mm. is pretty high. The Black Death. Nasty. Nasty, he can't help it. But what government could have helped was not being quite so nasty to the peasants afterwards. Yeah, really bad subjectivity, that. Screwing them over. Mm. And we had the good parliament, which is good. And they had the bad parliament, <laughs> which is bad. bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, I, I would venture to suggest that Alfred comes out on top in subjectivity. Well, I mean, obviously I'd suggest that Edward I might have a slightly slight edge to him, <laughs> but um, I think we we'll agree that Edward III's subjectivity is not so good. Not so good, although, again, you know, I mean, it's 50 years of stable rule. There's no internal yeah. divisions, there's no civil war which had been before and which comes after. Is actually as strong united as a pretty healthy. I suppose there's period, yeah, there's no um, there's no warring on English soil, or indeed he's not struggling on the borders too yeah. much either with Wales and Scotland. But given that the majority of people were peasants, 
Yeah. You've got taxation for these wars that are ultimately lost. Yeah. You've got the Black Death, which you couldn't help, but then totally <laughs> done over afterwards. Yeah. I don't like it. Mm. It's not a great time, perhaps, for the ordinary folk. Longevity. Oh, sort of relatively similar in a way. Alfred the Great, 871 to 899. 28.5 years. Reasonable. Very good for a Saxon. Indeed. Edward I, 1272 to 1307, 34.67 years. Better, you see. Edward III, 1322 to 1377, 50.58 years. Uh, well, but how much of that was incapacitated after a stroke? If only he could have died 10 years earlier. Yeah. He really did need to. Or if he could have retired, abdicated. Yeah. In my little Beatles reference earlier. Yeah. He's Paul McCartney. He's should have just let it go. Or let it be. <laughs> Very fine. High five. Yeah. Yes. Dynasty. Not the program. Alfred has five children surviving yeah. him. Yeah. Edward I has seven surviving Really? Him. And Edward III has four surviving children. He did have more, but obviously they all die because he lives so long. Yeah, yeah. Although yeah. Edward I actually, uh, the third, of course, is actually younger than Edward I when he dies. Yes. So Edward I yeah, does yeah. enjoy the longest period of actually just good health. His constitution stands up. They, of course it does. So, <laughs> that knocks that one. so, that's everything, except, of course, that final question, the crucial question, mm. where we decide, of the three monarchs, who really has the... Rex Factor! How could we possibly decide? I, uh, as you know, have a bit of a preference towards Alfred... Uh, <laughs> you, can't, you just can't get enough. Uh, yeah. I think, I mean, because I did in the semi-finals thing, I, no, this is semi-finals, the first round I made the Second World War parallel with Alfred. Yeah. 1940 um, situation where sort of, you know, Wessex on its own, mm. England on its own, Dunkirk when he has to go off to Athelney, yeah. D-Day when he comes back with Eddington, yeah. and then NHS when he refunds London and all this learning and stuff going yeah. on. It's good. He's the only monarch known as the Great in English history. Ooh, fact bat deployed. Only contemporary monarch, really, in Western Europe who successfully resists the Vikings. Oh, right. All the other kings are falling. And no less than Winston Churchill described Alfred the Great as the greatest Englishman who ever lived. Yeah. And that's from the man who was, of co- who now is, of course, officially <laughs> the greatest <laughs> Englishman who yeah, ever yeah. lived. And he said, actually, it's Alfred. Yeah, but Gallipoli. <laughs> <laughs> Edward the First, perfect, isn't he? He's got, he's got a he's got a claim to the throne. He's got the conquest of Wales. He's got the castles. Mm-hmm. Very visible mm. uh, impact and legacy. The English Justinian, the Hammer of the Scots, dubious perhaps. Oh, he just died, poor chap. <laughs> and of course, and it's the the character of Edward the First. He's so imposing. Mm. He's even now you feel a little bit worried. Yeah. Just sort of tiptoeing near to his throne and think, God, I hope he isn't watching. Yeah, yeah, I think he'll be watching. Oh, he'd be terrifying. He'd be literally scaring a man to, to death. death. It's, it's fantastic. Not so much for him, <laughs> but what a presence he must have had. Mm. Very cool. Mind you, Edward III had the same presence. He must have had a presence. He, of course, has got the Arthurian air. Mm. He models himself on Arthur, he models the court on Camelot. He's got these incredible victories, the ultimate medieval daring do with the Cressy, with Poitiers, with Slee, with the Calais, mm. Manny, and all his other knights running around finding Frenchmen to fight. And there are lots of other incredible stories and legends we just have to leave out because there's too many of them. Yeah, but I'm referring back to episode number, insert episode. Indeed. Here. 
And uh, you know, 1340 to 60, is there any better spell for a monarch? English monarch. Yeah, is, that, is that the best that it gets? It's just a bit... Well, yeah, it's cool. And it's all there's lots of pageantry. It's encouraging people to have fun. But it's just a bit, a bit hollow, given that we know the end. It's a sad ending. The, end the long and winding road. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> if only we'd known we were going to do this, we could have yeah, done so many in the previous hours. Um... Um, uh, octopus is gone. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think we're ready. I'm ready to do some voting. So, Ali and I are going to vote, and you, the public, also are hopefully going to be voting. So, remember, go on to rexfactor.wordpress.com, vote for your favourite of the monarchs. And if you haven't voted in the other groups, then do so in Group A, and also in Group B. That was easy. Ali and I have voted. That is the end of semi-final C and the semi-finals. So, um, you've got groups semi-finals A, B and C, and the deadline... Thursday the 12th of June. Uh, so, thank you very much for listening. Yeah, thanks very much for um, putting up with my my love of Edward the First, and you know, let's see him through to the final. And uh, we will be back with the results of the semi-finals to tell you who will be in the grand final of Rex Factor. Oh, that's really exciting, isn't it? This it really is. is. It's really episode. getting there. Yeah. See you next time. Bye.